Welcome to CineSoul Podcast, where we use cinema to explore what matters to us most. I'm your host, Jorge Castellanos. Hey, today's conversation is based on the film First Reformed, written and directed by Paul Schrader. He's best known as the writer of several films directed by Martin Scorsese, including Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and The Last Temptation of Christ. Of course, he's also written and directed many of his own films, including Blue Collar, American Gigolo, and Cat People. Two guests join me in conversation today. Returning guest Dominic Lang is a film director, writer, and editor, and the co-host of What Exactly Am I Watching Here? Another Overthink Network podcast. Welcome back, Dom. Jorge, good to be back. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you here. And first-time guest Bob Jackson is a long-time friend. Let's not talk about how long, Bob. And currently working on his MFT. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Jorge. Excited to join you both. Well, thanks. So let me start us off briefly with a, a summary of the film, a short summary. And this is a good opportunity to remind our listeners that spoilers will abound in our conversation. So heads up, okay? So First Reform tells the story of Reverend Ernst Toller, played by Ethan Hawke. Ernst is the pastor of a small historical church in upstate New York who struggles with a tormented past, the tragic suicide of a person he was counseling, and the tension between hope and despair in his faith. Issues of climate change and environmentalism figure prominently in the story, and the film's an exploration of these deep subjects and how they are woven together. So obviously it's a light summer popcorn movie. Yeah. I was Ooh. I was surprised this was not one of the uh, before movies from Richard Linklater, like Before Sunset, <laughs> or I was expecting that. So, Or an extension of boyhood into perhaps manhood. I was really disappointed. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not to be trifled with, this no. film. No. But that's why we like talking about these kinds of films on Cinesoul, right? Agreed. Agreed. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sins, the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. My hands shake as I write these lines. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Can God forgive us for what we've done to this world? Who can know the mind of God? All right, so let me let me jump in with the first question to each of you. Uh, what was your initial impression from the film as the film ended and the credits roll? Uh, what were you thinking and feeling? Dom, let's start with you. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to see it with some friends. Uh, I was thinking of seeing it, and then I ran into some folks who were going to see it later that night, and they said, hey, you should join us. So I was like, oh, great. And uh, there were about six or seven of us. And after, as the film ended and credits were rolling, all of us were silent. Uh, you could tell that we were trying to absorb and process, uh, especially the ending of First Reformed left you or left me in a new, in a unique place, in a very uncertain place. Uh, it's a very profound film, a very deep film, a very respectful film uh, in the sense that 
it brings you to the point of mystery, but doesn't try to overly explain it. And so uh, it gives you enough space to access it on your own. So there was a lot that I was trying to, in a sense, like make sense of or uh, put words to. Yeah. Because it put me in that mysterious or ineffable place. I come from a background of faith and I come from a background of loving movies and the history of it or what my experience is that faith is not represented in this way often in film. Yeah. So it felt like I'd just been given this, this bounty of, of things to think about and feel and was like, as we left the theater, all of us were kind of just, it's like looking at this, this rock from all different angles and trying to say, well, what about this or this ending or what was he thinking at this part of the scene or in this element? So it left me with a lot to think about is, is the short of it. Yeah. How about you, Bob? I think I was, um, as the movie ended, he took over the, um, the vest from Michael. And I was, that was such a big shift for me as we were ending the film. And just the, the thinking of like, what, you know, you know, not just his own death, but what is he trying to do to, yeah. to bring everybody else into this? And what is he trying to say? So I was spinning from that. And then, you know, as he had to shift, as he realized, oh, this is, this is not what I'm going to do. Just going into this kind of solo act of like, okay, it's going to be just about me. Um, and so for me, it was really no doubt that that's what was happening, that, that we were kind of witnessing his, I mean, I mean, I felt like I was experiencing his last experience before he left. So, yeah. but even, even having experienced that, I still kind of like, was like, what, you know, is what was, what was that about? And what, um, I don't know. So, I was kind of in a, in kind of a, that type of mode, kind of similar to Dom. Like, what did I just experience and why, what was being said there? Yeah. And we're going to definitely end up talking about the ending of the film and what our, what our perspectives are on that from a, hopefully a, a bunch of different angles. But I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of echoing what you guys are saying about your experience. You know, I, I left the film and I saw it alone. Mm. So I basically sat through the credits just pondering yeah. and like, like, you know, Bob used the term spinning and, uh, you know, just being reflective. And, and then I, I came home and I started to write down some notes and didn't get very far mm. because I realized I'm going to have to think about this for a while before I'm ready to, to really kind of declare what I'm, actually thinking or feeling and yeah. gratefully gratefully I've had some time, but you know, initially I wrote down, it's a disturbing film, which left me confused at what it finally was trying to say. And, and then a few other notes, but, but yeah. very much echoing your thoughts, Dom, in the sense that you don't see a lot of films with this kind of subject matter, right? You know, Paul Schrader, the writer director is, a Calvinist and he actually um, was trained at seminary. Yeah. And for you lovers of 
uh, Schrader material out there. I've heard him very much confess, if you will, uh, that a lot of the structure of this film and what he had in mind was meant to echo his Taxi Driver script. Yeah, we were talking about that immediately after the film. Yeah, the narration element and... Yeah, and just the the idea, like the character... Uh, the character of a person who comes to believe something so deeply that they act in a way that, you know, if you were to compare them to themselves at the beginning of the movie might be against their own code and might be in the lens or through the lens of some people as a form of extremism, but viewed through the lens of other people as a form of necessity. Yeah. So, one of the themes, prominent themes, let's say, of this film, uh, in my view, is the tension between hope and despair. Mm. They're talking about hope and despair a lot. A lot of different characters do. Yeah. So that tension, especially from a spiritual perspective, because a lot of those characters are within the spiritual realm, right? It's yeah. Pastor Toller, it's, it's Reverend Jeffers, the entertainer character. And Toller is kind of painted as a man who has, and this is a reference from a, a Q&A I heard Paul Schrader do after a Chicago premiere of this film. Toller painted as a man who has what Kierkegaard called, quote, the sickness unto death, unquote, which I believe was the title of one of Kierkegaard's books. I haven't yeah. read it, so I can't speak too, too definitively about that piece of literature. But my understanding in my... Uh, shallow research about that is that uh, that sort of means a spiritual death with, which stems from not embracing oneself mm. and reference Reverend Jeffers chides him chides Toller for quote, always being in the garden, meaning the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed that his martyrdom would be prevented. And he prayed so earnestly that he sweated drops of blood. Right. Mm. So what do you think of this? hope versus despair tension that the film was talking about. What, how did it impact you? Go ahead, Dom. So about two or three Christmases ago, I was in Texas and most of my family lives now. And uh, the previous Christmas to that, it was cold and wet and like December. And that year it was like the next year, it was 80 degrees on Christmas morning. And I saw my nephew, who was three at the time, he was looking at a snow globe in my parents' house. And I instantly went into this despair mindset of, like, my nephew's never going to know snow. Like, by the time he's my age, climate change will have affected the earth to such a degree. And I just went dark super fast. And then I blocked it out for about a year. And... I then heard a talk on how a writer deals with catastrophe by uh, a writer named Wendy Walters and how a writer can process and hold something unholdable. And I talked to a friend of mine. I was like, oh, this reminds me of this thing. And so I wound up writing about that and writing about what do I do in the midst of something that I can neither hold nor scale or overcome by myself And one of the things that I wound up writing or saying is like, I want, like all I have to give 
my nephew is my love, but in the moment, my love doesn't feel like it's enough. Mm. And watching First Reformed, it made me think of that moment of like, I want to pass on hope. I want to speak sincerely of hope, but in the face of all that I see, hope feels like a pissing into the wind. Right. And I think to mourn and to, to despair in that moment is an honest reaction. Like you're going to despair and you're going to feel at a loss. So how is, how do you hope and how you, how do you continue to hope in situations that don't automatically give you hope? Yeah, it's like a question to, that we all struggle with. I think, Bob, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, as you mentioned, I'm I'm studying to um, get my marriage and family therapy license, and I'm I'm doing counseling with people this last year, and it kind of follows my path of being a I think a serial idealist. I think myself, <laughs> you know, having kind of worked in the environmental field, I've worked in nonprofit world, and now I'm. I'm preparing to work and counsel with people. And there's definitely an element of hope that drives me through those um, mm. kind of peer, you know, different idealistic goals. Yeah. So I can identify different times when, um, when that hope has been much further away. I mean, definitely in this political environment. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of us kind of toggle, you know, between the hope and despair. And I just, you know, on my personal level as I've, um, you know, I've been, I, I have one particular person I've, I've been working with for a while and all of a sudden, you know, a story of the past just came and just kind of shook my whole kind of understanding of, of what this person's experience was. And I, you know, for several days I was, I was spinning again, kind of similar to this, you know, my reaction to the film where my you know, my, my sight, my, you know, you know, what I saw as the path to healing all of a sudden had been completely shifted. Mm. So, you know, it took me time to kind of like regroup and try to, and recalibrate really. And to, to find that again, you know, I feel that in this film though. I, you know, I'm probably still trying to recalibrate what, mm -hmm. what the film's saying. Cause, but, um, you know, that's how I really relate to that. Those yeah. two elements. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that resonates a lot for me. Yeah, I, I I think, you know, we've all had, I certainly have had moments of of despair. Uh, and like you just said, Bob, during this political climate that we find ourselves in right now, you know, it seems like every every day there's a new low. And, you know, I wake up saying it can't get any worse, and it does by the end of the day. And it would be very easy, and I have found myself you know, in this last year or so, let's say, you know, easily falling into a likelihood, let's say, of despairing, of just mm -hmm. feeling like, what's what's the use? There's there's no point to this. But that's a temporary thing and doesn't seem to spiral for me like I know it can for others and like it certainly seems to do for the character Michael in the film, who's mm -hmm. the environmentalist, he's the husband of uh, Mary, who's mm -hmm. the Amanda Seyfried character. And it seems to be something that Michael passes on uh, in some ways to Reverend Toller, to Ernst. Yeah. And so I think that's what kind of made the film interesting to me was 
you know, what made him go down that path. Cause I think when he first has that conversation at their house mm. with him, his first, let's call it a counseling conversation, you know, he gets asked some pretty hard questions by Michael as to how can you see all that's happening to this planet at the hands of human action and feel like you can just go on every day. And I felt like the reverend's responses during that conversation were were real and and useful and seemed to come from a place grounded in hope. You know, he even has a little con a little speech about hope with Michael. And I thought, oh wow, this guy, you know, he sounds pretty grounded and 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 like he can be a, a healing person in Michael's life. And then the rest of the film sees him you know, take a different path, so to speak, or maybe ground down by despair. I think the tension is so palpable for him that it's, you know, overwhelming, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that conversation, I think to me, it, it, before me, it brought to light the, the idea that, you know, hope like to hope and to despair are choices Mm. or could be, you know, I'm not, a hundred percent sure on that, but it felt like in that moment, yeah, the Reverend choosing to hope, and in that moment, Michael choosing despair, yeah, and in a way choosing to act in a particular way, right? Yeah, I I, uh, I listened to a Q and A video of uh, Paul Schrader being interviewed on stage after the screening premiere. Uh, of the film in Chicago. And during that interview, uh, he basically said, and I'm quoting here, you have to choose hope. Camus once said, I don't believe I choose to believe. And I think it's possible to choose to hope, but I don't know if it's possible to hope. So I think, you know, I think that echoes what you just said. I wonder, um, you know, Reverend Toller, connecting with Michael. I think Michael is very compelling. You know, initially comes across as you hear about him through Mary is like, Oh, okay. He's a little off. Right. And we meet him. Gosh, compelling. feels like emotionally connected to the meaning of like all the rest of us are just like not paying attention. Right. And he is, and he's feeling it. And so I was more connected to Michael than I was um, Reverend Toller in those moments. It kind of felt like, Reverend Toller did the best job he could to try to comfort him, but I, I still don't know if he com- was completely there. Like, I think he was still, you know, I think his nut was starting to be cracked in terms yeah. of, like, really taking that in. And, and and maybe some of the message of his hope was to embrace this message of, like, I need to make a difference or something. I don't know. And then it, and yeah. then it flipped. I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I remember that after that scene where we get, you know, the, the reverend's back at home and he's writing in his journal, as we see so often, and he's writing about how how it went and what things he could have said better and what he'll try to say better the next time that they meet. And so I think, you know, I think he was caught a little off guard by the things that Michael said and how and and I think he was off guard in the sense of they challenged him in ways that he didn't expect. And so that journaling process was him trying to kind of hone that in a way that would make him a more effective voice in their 
next conversation that unfortunately never happened. Yeah, and you know, both of you mentioning the political climate. The something I've been thinking about in relation to that is the the idea of lament, mm-hmm. and there's a culture of anger, and there's a culture of like you said, hope and despair, but not really a culture of lament, especially in the West, of of acknowledging where we have erred, mourning that, and still walking forward together. And Bob, I don't know your experience like in working with couples or working with people in particular, like mourning or lament in the space of a relationship or even toller mourning or lamenting to God, like in that relationship, like what does, how does lament look in the space of a relationship? I think where I touch with that is, you know, having to embrace, you know, a break, um, a, you know, a violation of some type and just, being with it honestly and having to, you know, absorb it or be with it and try and then move forward with it and recognize the loss that's been caused by whatever break in relationship or trust. And then, you know, moving forward, you know, with a whole new scope of honesty. Yeah. Um, and when you bring up lament, I think of an inward process that's like it brings it in, it processes, it moves inward. And anger is the, is an outward form of reaction and there's good forms of anger, but you know, will it turn into change or, you know, et cetera, perhaps lament has a lament process fully. You know, I think you can get perhaps stuck in a a lament of like a spiral down of like, Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think they both can have their, their positives and negatives. Mm -hmm. And do you think Michael was going through any kind of lament in his despair yeah, I I would argue yes. But then like to Bob's point that lament carried on to a certain degree and only held internally. Mm-hmm. It feels like it would like it over time became a corrosive yeah thing. I don't know, Bob, what do you think? Well, I you know, it makes me think of one question that maybe like how you know, broadens it is like what would have been Michael's arc if if the pregnancy hadn't happened, because that was such a spark for him mm. that he couldn't face. If that hadn't happened, would, you know, would this have been an inevitable, you know, would he, you know, was the lament about, I guess he had a lot of feelings about bringing another, you know, life into the world. Yeah. But I don't know what, what, what do you guys think would have happened if, if that in his life? Yeah. I mean, he mentions several people who like across, across the world died in, certain environmental activism uh, situations. Yeah, I think he called them martyrs, right? Yeah, yeah, no, he, he, he called them martyrs. And I wonder, were the pregnancy not to have existed and, and drawn him into such sharp focus, I think, you know, environmental martyrdom very well could have been something. I guess, I mean, I guess what might answer that um, question is his vest. Yeah. You know, that probably may have come about, not from the pregnancy, but from that own sense of martyrdom. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder if the pregnancy forestalled his use of the vest. Oh, interesting. You know, you go from the the theoretical and the big world sort of despair and how I'm going to make an impact in a larger context kind of way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm going to put on a vest and blow up a bunch of people or whatever he was going to do. But he doesn't think about who those people are. 
who is the person that's, you know, the innocent whose life pays the cost for my Mm -hmm. big global uh, impact message. And I think he, I think the pregnancy sort of brought all that closer to him or it could have anyways. And we need to bring Reverend Toller into my question as well, because he went through the same arc. Yeah. He was going to do something big. And then mm-hmm. he and then he made a different choice, similar to what Michael did, you know. And maybe it had to do with Mary and the pregnancy, you know, Mary's presence in her pregnancy, you know, etc. I mean, I think it's an interesting question. When when we join the Reverend, really before he's even in, uh, interacted much with Mary or Michael, and it's not really until he meets Michael and and shares his backstory, right, about how he had a son that he convinced to join the military. The son joined the military. Six months later, he was killed in Iraq. And that ended his marriage and has left him, which where he is now, which we have already seen is he's an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And we learn more about that moving forward is the fact it's, you know, it's taking a toll on him in other ways as well. I mean, did he go through a healthy process after the death of his son and the death of his marriage, if I can use that term, or, or has he been stuck in some sort of internal navel gazing lament? And, and I don't mean kind of in healthy ways. Sure. That as we watch the film further births, these other kinds of pathways for him. Yeah. I mean, he's keeping the journal at, at the, he, he's, begins the journal at the beginning of the film and there's no explicit rationale as to I'm keeping this journal because I was in the supermarket one day and I like, he just says, I'm keeping a journal for a year and we go, okay, great. He's keeping a journal. So there's some sort of interrogation happening. There's some sort of personal uh, inventory that's going on. Yeah. And I see that as a, as a first step in a potential road to health. It doesn't necessarily or automatically lead to health. Bob, what's your take on that? Oh, this is good because I'll I'll come in a different direction. Um, <laughs> nice. I yeah, I think that he is aware of his of his decline, and this might be his lasting you know recording. Or I mean, he kind of talks about tearing it up, but it feels like he's. Recording the process is he's getting sicker and uh, wanting to process it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of see it as that and, and maybe leaving a tribute. And it's an interesting, you know, idea of what and why. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I and maybe it's been clear. I don't know if the drinking he drank because of his illness mm-hmm. or if, if the if the illness was caused by his drinking. You know, it could have been like he was in such stomach pain or whatever. Mm. But he's he's choosing. He just seems like as he's come out of it, you kind of pose the question around. He's come out of the death of his son, the ending of his marriage. It's just he hasn't dealt with some things, and you know, of us who hasn't, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but those are pretty big. And he's here at this remote church that has a very specific function, but nothing really enlivening and enlivened about it, and. You know, maybe, you know, the journal's about just finding meaning in that. And, and all of a sudden, boom, and pops Michael with this huge, this huge proposition, something to really care about. And then that even leads to him tearing the, you know, half his journal away, you know, a bunch of those entries. So I mm-hmm. think 
something happens and bumps him and he starts to question. And maybe that's symbolized by him tearing out his journal pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm as we're talking, what I'm wondering is, is the journal, which in a lot of ways just, you know, he introduces it and talks about it, like Dom said, is I'm going to write down every thought and what happens to me every day for a year, and then I'm going to shred it and burn it. And initially, my my reaction was, why? Why are you going to do that? Like Dom said, we don't really have a clear understanding. And then we keep seeing right next to his, or on his writing desk, is a small painting. It's a painting of a palm, some a hand, mm. with sort of a red dot in in the center. And I couldn't see it very clearly on either of the screenings that I saw this film at. Mm. So I read up about it and it's basically a painting. I think Schrader uh, said something in an interview with illuminated this for me. So he was fully aware of it as he made the film. The painting is supposedly a depiction of Julian of Norwich, who was one of the wrote one of the first texts on meditation uh, back in, I think, the 1380s or something like that. And that's the hand. And she she experimented with meditation by placing a hazelnut in her palm and then staring at it. And staring at it, imagining that it assumes the proportion of the world, mm. right? So as a meditative tool, right? I'm going to get into my – she didn't have a mantra or whatever. She just – she just stared at this hazelnut for an hour and would be thinking, you know, this hazelnut holds all the things in the world, right? Yeah. And and isn't that what Ernst is just overcome by? Mm-hmm. You know, Jeffers says, hey, you're always in the garden. You're never on the mountaintop. And it's because he's always reflecting about all these desperate things. And I, I sort of find that noteworthy, I guess. Mm. Just to... To clarify, Ernst, his his dedication in terms of like like uh, Cedric says, always being in the garden, is that the thing that you find noteworthy? I just seem to feel like from the journal, from the painting of the hand and the, the hazelnut, from the way that he, over the course of the film, embraces all the things that Michael was about, is that he's obsessive mm. about all the desperate things in the world, even the desperation inside himself, which is why he's trying to journal about all these things, but that there's no obsession about joy or peace or solution or I, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's single, it's single minded. Yeah. Single minded in that sense. I mean, maybe he's, you know, He's embraced the lament mindset, but he's not someone who's been able to let it go. Mm, yeah. He's mm. he's still pulling his son's death along with him, um, his broken relationship, and he's gone to a place to retreat. I mean, this you know, going to this small church in upstate New York, yeah, um, is a retreat away mm. from and somewhat away from the world. It's an escape, really. It's an escape, and okay. um, I don't know how what his you know, to the degree that he was practicing what his spiritual practice was outside of his work. But I mean, that's kind of what monks did. They retreated to themselves. They had, they did something for work to earn money and, and then they retreated. Yeah. And there's that conversation between Toller and Jeffers where Jeffers 
throw some shade at Thomas Merton. Right. Like Merton was some, <laughs> some lonely monk in Kentucky who sat by himself and wrote books. And yeah, that in and of itself is, is a factual statement. Like Merton lived like he was by himself. He lived in Kentucky and he wrote books. Those are all true. And just, just for our listeners who haven't seen the movie and are braving all our spoilers, you know, Jeffers is the pastor of a mega church uh-huh. there in upstate New York. The mega church basically also runs this small historical church that Ernst is the pastor of. So Jeffers is Ernst's boss, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. But that notion of Toller sees his time in the garden, so to speak, almost it, it feels like with a sense of nobility or a sense of something that he is maybe not called to, but like, this is the thing that the burden he must bear. Yeah. And the thing that he deserves, you know, he, he grew up in, you know, a long line of pastors, uh, with a long connection to the military. And so very patriotic, veering on nationalistic, like that idea and his son, like him convincing his son to go and die or go and fight for a just cause and then dying in what he now sees as a needless cause. Right. I mean, it is this kind of like inverted or like distorted, like God sending his son for a quote unquote just cause or for like for a purpose. Right. And doing something out of, out of belief and then having that belief dashed or having that, that effort cast aside yeah, like I, you know, I can only imagine what that does to a person. Yeah, yeah, and then bearing the, you know, the guilt, you know, with his wife, yeah, like his their son followed him, mm-hmm. and now the son is, you know, their son's gone. Yeah, like his son trusted him. Yeah, and she was adamantly opposed, right? Yeah, at least that's how he put it. So another issue related to hope mm. that I wanted us to to touch on is patience. And the tension between patience and action. Reverend Jeffers, as he's rebuking Ernst for Ernst's growing environmental views that are conflicting with the megachurch's political perspective, let's put it that way, says that we have to be patient. And Ernst passionately replies that somebody has to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is probably the point in the film where I realized, oh, Ernst Ernst has become a passionate environmentalist, let's just say. Yeah. That he I don't know if he crossed the Rubicon, but you know, yeah. He he's on one shore looking at the other for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of it almost like leaked out of him. Just yeah. Just right there. There it was. Yeah. So I got I got to ruminating about that tension and the tension between uh, patience and action. Mm-hmm. I mean that's definitely played itself out in my life a lot, especially in my spiritual life, where I come from a background that, uh, you know, part of the process is to uh, be hopeful and to be waiting in hope and to be taking action in hope, mm-hmm. but to be waiting, so to speak, quote unquote, on God. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's a tension that has most of my life been very uncomfortable for me, mm-hmm. has been something that I have not found it easy to do. And at times easier, but even those easier times hasn't been easy. And so I, I wanted to 
to throw that out there for you guys to come back to me with, how does that dynamic play out in your life and experience, that tension between having patience but taking action? I mean, I'd add a, I don't know where I'd put, you know, if I put those two on a line, I would probably put, you know, maybe a different, you know, from patience to action. And then there's this other direction where I felt like stuckness, Mm. you know, it's like patience tends to come easy for me, you know, over patience and then being stuck. And then all of a sudden it's like this, you know, rootedness and just trying to get moving and trying to, um, to, to not like, oh, patience is a strength, but like it can become a, a hindrance when it's just, you just get stuck. So I can really relate to that. Kind of like what we talked about Ernst doing with lament. He's just stuck on lament. You can be stuck on patience. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's probably a balance between, you know, time to act and time to wait. You know, if you overweight. Yeah. I mean, that then you're, you know, you're in a whole nother well, patience is a virtue, but it's not the only virtue. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'll just outweigh this. Um, right. And uh, how's that, that working for everybody? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and maybe, you know, Revlin Toller feels like, boy, I've kind of ignored this environmental disaster for too long. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's, that helps, you know, highlight his action. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of a concept of like the now and not yet. Yeah. And so when Jesus talks about a kingdom come, a kingdom come now in that moment and a kingdom that is to come in the future and the belief or the idea that an action has an effect in the immediate, but the action also speaks to and, and honors the idea of something beyond and, and something in the future. And so even in terms of in terms of relationship for me, where I know that I'm going to be in conversation with like this, you know, X person for a long time. And we're not going to get to the point at which like, like this person that I'm in conversation with, there's a lot of healing to happen and a lot of things to be worked through. And it's not all going to happen in one conversation. And that's all right. Like I can, I can be present in that current conversation, in that now, and I can do so in service of a not yet, believing that eventually, if we do this now enough times, we will at one point be in that not yet. Yeah, I hear that. I don't know. My mind is also just thinking of like, what's the Al Gore film? Is it the Uncomfortable Truth? The Inconvenient 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 Truth. And Jorge and I, we saw that together. And if you notice in this film, he has in the back a CO2 chart. Yeah. That's kind of like, do you see that? And it goes off the chart at the very end. It's like, that's, you know, reminds me of that film of like, I think there was somewhat of a, a nationwide movement and awareness of like, and then lots of debate. Is it true or not? And it's been 10, 10 plus years since then. And that isn't, you know, those, the CO2 reminders are not. You know, speaking, you know, not all that present, you know, the world has kind of moved on. Yeah. And I feel like kind of this brings it back of like, mm-hmm. you know, okay, and maybe it's like, damn it, look how long we haven't done anything. We need to actually do something. Yeah. Well, and if we listen earnestly to to Michael in that conversation that he has with the Reverend, where behind him is all his research up on the walls and 
you know, his computer and whatever. We're already past the date, right? I mean, he was saying mm-hmm. like 2015, we needed to have done something major by 2015 and, and we didn't. So there's that sense of, you know, I think that's why he's in his despair, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The window has closed as far as he can tell. And now we're just waiting out the results. So, but this gives me an opportunity to, to ask about another sort of theme mm. or at least a question yeah. and literally a question that Michael brings up and that's echoed throughout the last part of the film. And, and I'm quoting him, can God forgive us for what we've done to this world? I'm going to pose that question to you and how would you answer that question? And you can take that and say, well, I'm going to answer it from an environmentalist point of view, or I'm going to answer it from the, the thought of what are the limits of God's forgiveness, or what does forgiveness mean mm. in, in my understanding, or, or how does forgiveness play out in my own individual life? There's a lot of ways to go here, but you know, how would you answer that? Can God forgive us? I mean, I think forgiveness is bigger than, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. I think forgiveness includes the full impact of of the wrongdoing. Here's what you're responsible for. Yeah, I mean, individuals think like, "Oh, I'm supposed to forgive that person and then I have to trust it." Like, no, you know, like right. you know, there's a that's different, you know, forgiveness of like being willing to forgive, but you've got to like forgive and remember, you know. Mm-hmm. And maybe it ties into a lament process of like you know, I don't know if lament is required to be forgiven, right? But it, you know, to to fully embrace the mistake, the screw up, mm-hmm. and to kind of seek forgiveness from that point, uh, I don't know. I think it's possible. So I, I think it is possible. Yeah, we were talking about forgiveness a while back, and that idea that of like, oh, just forgive and forget. Like we are a storytelling animal. It's in our nature to remember. And so when you're, when you're telling someone, oh, just forgive and forget, like you're telling them like that thing, which is inherent to you, just ignore that. Like, just don't do that part. And so it's, it's natural for you to remember and forgiving. Like you said, Bob, it's not ignoring what happened. It is sitting with what happened and naming it and choosing over and over again not to let that past dictate the present and the future. And forgiveness is not a one-time action. It's something that like I can choose to forgive someone today, right now, and then tomorrow something or two weeks from now, something's going to bring up that memory or that wrong. And right then and there, it's my choice to forgive that person again. I could like, maybe it gets easier over time, that's a plausible argument. Um, but it's not like, oh, I made the choice once and then I never have to make that choice again. Maybe it can be a habit, like something that you practice, right? No, it's a definite practice. It's, yeah. it's something that you, know, you, you choose to do and it's an orientation that you're, you're aiming for in a relationship. Right. And depending on the, you know, the transgression, you may have to make a choice each time to decide if you're going to continue a relationship with that person. Yeah. Yeah. But the forgiveness is still important, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And like forgiving someone and forgiveness and reconciliation, I would argue are two different things. 
that just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you have to like go have coffee with them every Tuesday. It's like there can be forgiveness. Like it can still be healthier for you two to live separate lives. And so that's, I would say like in, in a relational context, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. in in the sense of, of first reformed and the notion of, uh, of God's forgiveness, I, I would echo Toller's words, like who can know the mind of God? And I know that as creations surrounded by creation, we are responsible for how we have acted and how we have not acted. And there is, I believe, opportunity for, for us to ask forgiveness and receive that. And I don't, I don't know if there's a cap or a limit. It, it seems simultaneously that there is no cap, but there ought to be. A cap on forgiveness? Yeah. And there ought to be why? Uh, because my experience, because I'm surrounded by humanity, because I am human, like I know that I have limits. Right. And so I project that into my own experience. Sure. And so then using a theological imagination, like does God act outside of my imagination or act outside of my limits? Yeah. And I guess the hope is yes, but it's hard to imagine it. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe you add in the, the concept of reconciliation and that, there's kind of a cap on that. I mean, mm-hmm. how you may choose not to, but you know, if for for things that you're holding on to, that if you don't forgive, you get to carry those with you. Yeah. Yes. And so, in some ways, you're called to like forgive and process that and let it go mm-hmm. always. Yeah. You know, but reconciliation is is not necessarily always going to happen. Yeah. Well, uh, I kind of want to close our conversation. With, uh, I said we were going to talk about the ending, and I think this is the opportunity to talk about the ending of the film. How did you guys feel about the ending? Bob, you talked a little bit about it at the beginning of our conversation about sort of you were spinning by some of the choices that the Reverend was making. You want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, just the, the dichotomy of, of this Jesus-like death by wrapping himself in this barbed wire. The self-flagellation of it, right? Yeah. And he had gotten that out of the yard or I know there was some point, yeah, self-flagellation of just like, okay, I'm going to do this myself and potentially uh, lead in front of the, the group of the congregation, et cetera. Just kind of like let them experience that as opposed to take people down. Um, Combined with, I'm assuming a gruesome, suicidal death because he's going to yeah. drink a glass of Drano. Right. I mean, I saw all or of liquid that. Liquid plumber just, or whatever. Sorry, brand out there. It's just rough. It's in, it's in your face. All of this is not subtle at all. No, it's not. He is, yeah. you know, being the guy being contemplative in the garden and, you know, he kind of, his, you know, he gets enlivened by the, these different points um, around his interaction with uh, Jeffers and, and, you know, in his beliefs, but he's just like going to go out at least in his mind in a place of kind of a real big blaze of glory. Yeah. Processing that I'm processing and I don't know how to, you know, this idea of the artist, it's the artist that just gets crushed by the wrongs of our world, the, the, you know, and maybe as the, the ministers, yeah. the, the people in that profession, I think Michael had that. He was, you know, they're the, they're canaries in the coal mine. And so yeah. I think in some ways he's like, 
you know, being not just the canary in the coal mine, but the canary, you know, the, you know, this, you know, sounding it out to every, so that everybody can see. Yeah. I, uh, I was thrown by the ending is it felt like such a break style wise from what had preceded it. It felt like a break in terms of emotional scope. Like it, it was so much more vibrant than everything it felt like that had preceded it. Yeah. And I listened to this interview between Sofia Coppola and Paul Schrader. And she asked him about, about the ending. And uh, he's like, Oh, I don't, he said, I don't know if the ending's real or imagined. And I respect that about the man because it felt to me, the, the earlier scene with Amanda Seyfried and, Ethan Hawke, where there's levitation and a travel. Right. And then it's never mentioned again. There's no like morning after scene. There's no scene. Even when Ethan Hawke, even when Toller is seen Mary off, where you think they would talk about that night, they don't. Which completely leaves the scene open to interpretation as about whether it actually even happened. Yeah. So to me, it, kind of, it almost felt like a dream. Like he imagined that particular scene. So on one hand, I was like, well, he, he might have imagined this scene also, or it could be an instance of, and Schrader's argue, like Schrader thought like, you know, there's the argument that it's a miracle, right? That like at this moment where he's going to drink a glass of Drano, the one person who could stop him shows up in his house. Right. That, that, that it's an in, intervention of God's grace into his life. Yes. Right. Like right then and there. And he said, there's also the idea that he's, he's had the glass of Drano. He's on all fours, vomiting up everything. And God, who has been silent the entire movie, speaks to him and says, do you want to know what heaven is like? Mm. And says, like, right. And gives him this image. So like, Heaven looks like one long kiss. Interesting. And that's his last moment. And so he, and so the, the argument or kind of the like, what if? Yeah. Is that he's actually getting a glimpse of what heaven looks like as he's dying. That's interesting. In one of the interviews I saw or read with Schrader, he mentioned his thoughts about writing the ending of the film and choosing the path. Like he could have, he said he could have gone three ways. One, one was he blows up the church and you see body parts flying everywhere and it's the peck and paw ending. And he said, you know, he, he was kidding, obviously. And then another way, there's a film called Ordette by Carl Theodore Dreyer. It's, I think, a film in the 30s. I've heard about this movie, yeah. And it were in the film, there's a man and a wife and the man has a brother and the brother's a little deranged and thinks he's Christ. And he goes out and wanders around and a storm happens and the wife goes out to look for him, doesn't find him and gets lost in the storm and ends up dying of a cold or Mm. an illness or whatever. And the husband is lamenting over the death of his wife and the deranged brother who thinks he's Christ shows up, comes out of the wilderness and says, don't worry, I'll raise her from the dead. And he does. And the husband is overwhelmed with, you know, as Schrader put it, carnal delight. He's kissing and hugging his wife, really happy that she's back from the dead. But 
only concerned with that, not having any kind of spiritual reaction to the miracle of her being resurrected. Hmm. And, you know, Schrader shares that as his sort of framework for writing this ending. So is that final scene a condemnation of Ernst as the guy who all he's concerned about is the embrace and the kiss with Mary, Mm. uh, love in his life, rather than the miracle of the fact that if that kiss could have been real, it came at the salvation of his life. I don't know. Yeah. I think you could argue that if it, if the kiss is real, if it's actually happening, yeah, that is it a gift or is it miraculous that he is pulled from despair, even if just for that moment, yeah, to experience something such as a kiss, which other than the scene where Mary, you know, that sort of metaphysical scene where Mary lays down on top of him and then, mm-hmm. then cinematically we go other places and then shit gets crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, is that the only sort of physical affection? that we see in the entire film between two people. I mean, his, yeah, he certainly rejects the advances of, of Esther, the, of, the, of Esther. Yeah. I think she does show him some affection that he does push back against. Yeah. Physically though, is there an embracer? I think in the, sta- like on the staircase. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Th- like she right. reaches out to him or tries to yeah. hold him. Yeah. And he's not comfortable with that. No, at all. Well, Guys, any any final thoughts, burning issues, other questions that you want to raise? I would just, you know, just, you know, despair is like, is, you know, us as humans, as us finite people, I mean, despair is like this idea of, you know, sometime we're going to, we're going to be perhaps facing our, you know, impending death. And there is that, like, do, you know, how do we manage that despair? And choosing, like, being present with it and holding it and also, like, going with integrity or hope or just still being, I don't know, that's just something we'll, we, we all get to kind of hold and yeah. carry with us as, as, we, as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Beekner called it whistling in the dark mm. about, you know, how I can grind myself into dust and still not know everything and still not know what say like what goes, what happens beyond death. And that despair is something that unfortunately comes natural to me. Uh, But I would also argue that hope and affection is something that, that at least that desire is something that comes natural to me also. Yeah. So there's that tension that I have. uh, And I would argue that that tension exists in other people as well. And so to discuss that in in community, in, you know, in situations such as these where I can see something and learn something from other people and see, a th- see it from a way that I haven't seen it yet and hear it in a way that I haven't heard it yet. Yeah. And how vital or, or how essential maybe is the right word, the embracing of mm. the reality that you're going through yeah. is to the, that further exploration, right? Yep, because if you're denying or you're or delusional about what's actually happening, if you're not really embracing what you're feeling and what's going on, how are you going to really be able to examine what that means for you? So yeah, well, guys, thanks, thanks so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, uh, thank you, Jorge. thank you, Jorge. I I learned a lot from listening 
and talking with both of you. And, and I hope, uh, listeners, that you enjoyed it, too. Uh, the film is uh, still playing in theaters, at least in my area. And I hope you go out and get a chance to check it out. And if you already have, which is my greater hope, that you enjoyed our uh, conversation about it and it stimulated your thoughts about it, too. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did doing it. You can learn more about Cinesoul and share your comments about this episode at Cinesoul.com. That's C-I-N-E-S-O-U-L.com. This episode was co-produced and edited by Ben Helms, who also wrote our theme. Thank you, Ben, for all your technical prowess. And it's hosted by the Overthink uh, Podcast Network, which you can find at theoverthink.com. You'll learn all about the different podcasts under the network's umbrella. Some really amazing stuff there. I urge you to check it out and uh, see what we've got. So thanks again for listening, and see you next time. (laughs) 